Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. All right, you can open your Bibles tonight if you want to follow along through some of the reading in Matthew 26. Matthew 26, and we'll be in a few different places. Um, I may ask you to turn to some places. I may just read it to you. So um, you do what you're comfortable with, turning and reading. If you have your book, the, we're going to go over chapters 6 and 7 tonight. Uh, the Garden of Gethsemane and then Jesus' uh, Jewish trial where he is convicted of blasphemy. And all of these events take place Thursday after the Last Supper, after... Um, after the, the washing of the disciples' feet on Maundy Thursday, those events will commemorate. Uh, this begins after that in the garden with his arrest, and then all through the night Thursday into the early hours of Good Friday morning with a trial before the Sanhedrin. So that's what we're going to go over tonight. The first scene we're going to come to is the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane. As I said, Thursday night through Friday night, or early Friday morning, April 6th through the 7th, A.D. 30. What is the significance of Jesus after the Last Supper, after the washing of the disciples' feet, and he says, Arise, let us go, and it's time for him to uh, be arrested. He knows the time of his trial has come, the time of his crucifixion has come. In fact, in John, it says that he arose from supper, and he said that his hour had come. And if you pay attention to the writing of John's gospel, there's many times when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, or my time has not yet come. And yet here in that moment, he says, the time has come. And as they arise from supper and the washing of the disciples' feet, and they begin to leave the city of Jerusalem out the eastern gate over the brook Kidron, the valley Kidron, up to Gethsemane, to the garden of Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives. But to ask, why would Jesus choose to leave the city that he knows he's going to eventually come back to for his trials? He knows that he will be convicted in Jerusalem, although he will be executed just outside the city. Why leave the city only to know that they are going to come back after his arrest? Well, Jesus has a motive in choosing the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to talk a little bit about some of those, those motives. But what is the significance of Jesus coming to a garden to pray. Well, you might remember another time in a garden when a man and a woman faced a temptation by the devil, and instead of being successful in overcoming that temptation and trotting on the serpent as they were supposed to, taking dominion over all creation, you remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden failed their test 
and succumbed to the deception and the temptation of Satan and plunged mankind into the curse of sin in what we call the fall. So there was a test, a temptation. Will you obey God or will you not obey God? And when faced with that deception and that temptation, Adam and Eve fell and took all of humanity with them there in the Garden of Eden. Now we come to the dawn of a new creation. And another man comes to a garden. And though we do not have a narrative in the Gospels of an exchange between Jesus and the serpent, we do know that there are cosmological spiritual forces in play here. Because it was Satan who had entered Judas. It was Satan who had caused Judas to do what he did in betraying the Lord. It was Satan who actually was puppeting through Peter, if you remember, when Jesus said, I'm going to have to suffer and die. And it was Peter who said, no, Lord, you will never do that. And remember what Jesus said to Peter in that moment, get behind me, Satan, even though it was the the disciple Peter who was saying those words. So we know Satan is at work here, tempting Jesus to abandon his mission, tempting Jesus to disobey his father and not go to the cross and not obey what his father had commanded him to do. But whereas Adam and Eve failed in their temptation, Adam and Eve failed in their moment of testing before the serpent, Jesus succeeds and he is triumphant. And so whereas in that first garden we saw failure in the middle of temptation and the fall of mankind, now we see triumph over Satan. And we see triumph over temptation and sin. And we see the ultimate promise of our redemption. But it does not come easily. What Jesus experiences there most of all in the garden, along with prayer, is agony. Let's look at Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36. We'll read Matthew's account of this, and the other gospel accounts aren't too different from this, um, so we'll stick with Matthew's for the time being. Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over here and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that is James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And those words are heavy. Uh, that it, it's not sad. Or, or a little stressed, or a little anxious. Those words carry the connotation of something being heavy. There's a, a burden being placed on Jesus, and we, we understand that. Verse 38, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. There's that word again, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Now there's that cosmological spiritual warfare going on even there. You watch and you pray lest you fall into temptation, Jesus says. This is no light moment. Verse 42. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. 
and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now we have similar narrative in Mark's gospel in the 14th chapter and Luke's gospel in the 22nd chapter. Now John is the only one who does not tell us specifically that Jesus took his disciples to the garden. But we can look at the, the narrative after the upper room in John 13, the washing of the disciples' feet, and after the upper room discourse about the coming of the Holy Spirit. They do depart and go somewhere. And in John 17, Jesus does lift up what's called the high priestly prayer. And so maybe that high priestly prayer was part of this prayer in the garden as he prayed for his disciples and he prayed for those who would believe on him through their word. So whatever the case may be, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell generally the same stories we just read in Matthew's gospel. And John gives us some prayers, and we can only kind of surmise that those were going on there in the Garden of Gethsemane as well. So why choose Gethsemane? We talked about a garden, but why Gethsemane? Gethsemane, the word, means oil press. And if you're familiar with Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives, it was named because there were plenty of olive trees there. And they named the place Oil Press. Whether or not there was an actual olive oil press there or not, we don't know. But there were plenty of olive trees, and of course lots of olives were harvested from there and put in a press for oil. But this name and this place has much significance for what's going on now in the life of Jesus. As I told you there early on, when he says, my soul is sorrowful, I'm burdened. There's a heavy weight of agony and sorrow. And so if you can picture an oil press in that day, probably two giant stones that would grind together over grapes or olives or whatever it is to press out the juice or to press out the oil, immense terrible pressure being placed on the fruit to squeeze out the oil and the juice. Now you can see Jesus' agony and his burden that he bears in this place of the oil press as his soul is being crushed by the burden and the load that he is carrying. Luke tells us in his account that Jesus' sorrow was so overwhelming and his burden so heavy that he sweat, sweat drops like blood. Now, I've heard lots of preachers and lots of pastors um, go into all kinds of medical things about how this could be possible for him to actually sweat blood. But it's worth noting that Luke says his sweat was like blood. Uh, I, I don't personally think Jesus was sweating drops of blood, maybe, and that's fine. Uh, but his, his sweat was so thick and so much, so extravagant that Luke says... It was like he was bleeding from his head. Now, if you differ on that, that's fine. That's not a big deal. It is worth noting that in the Mormon church, um, they consider Jesus' bleeding in the garden as his atonement. So when you talk to, to some, some Mormon missionaries, it's interesting when they talk about the atonement, they're not so much talking about the cross as the Garden of Gethsemane because that's where Jesus began to shed his blood, according to them. But again, that's neither here nor there. Probably was not bleeding Sweat drops or sweat, sweating blood, uh, but it sweat was so thick and so much that Luke said it was like blood. Either way, you see the agony and the pressure as an olive under the press being squeezed for that last drop of oil. The soul of the Lord Jesus there in the garden beginning at last to feel the 
heaviness of the burden that he's been asked to carry. And what's this cup Jesus talks about? What is the cup that Jesus says, Father, if this cannot pass, in verse 42, unless I drink it? And the other Gospels specifically talk about a cup. What is this cup that Jesus is referring to? And why does it seem that Jesus is scared in this moment? What is he fearful of? Well, here's what he's not fearful of. Jesus is not afraid of death. Jesus is not afraid of the physical anguish of the cross. I don't think Jesus in this moment is getting cold feet because he's thinking about the physical pain or the cross or the suffocation or the spear in his side or the crown of thorns or the jeering or the mocking. Now, I'm sure touching his human nature, Jesus was nervous and anxious, but this is not a moment where Jesus is threatening to pull away and not obey because he's scared. The sum of Jesus' fears is the cup of the wrath of God. In Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17, the Lord says that his wrath is like a cup, that when people drink it, it makes them stagger. It is like a strong, potent cup of wine. That just one sip, the prophet says, makes men to stagger and to fall down. And yet Jesus is here seeing this figurative cup and the Father's hand out holding the cup to him, the cup of his own wrath. And Jesus, with no fear of death necessarily, and not so much the pain and the suffering, but understanding what this cup is, the fullness of the wrath of God. That as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 24, Jesus knew that soon he was going to bear in his body the sins of mankind. He knew that as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, you you know this, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Jesus, of course, not... And Paul hasn't written that yet, but the reality of that is settling in on Jesus now. In his body, he will bear the sins of the world. In his body, God will place all the sins of humanity on him. Maybe most of all, it's Galatians 3.23, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So more than he fears the physical anguish and the physical death and the cross and the mocking and the trials, more than he fears those things, he fears this cup of God's holy, undiluted wrath that will not be poured out on an entire nation as was the case with Israel or Judah back in their judgment but it's poured out on one single human being, the man, Christ Jesus. Uh, If you have your book, I'm just going to read one quote from the book tonight on page 84. At the end of Jesus' prayer, you notice Matthew's gospel says, um, if it can't pass for me, your will be done. You might be more familiar with Luke's words, uh, Father, If it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. 
Hear what the author says on the bottom of page 84 in the book. Jesus' submission to the Father's will was not words spoken by an ivory tower theologian, but the words of one who prayed with the profound conviction that God's will is always best. Jesus prayed for something God could not answer affirmatively. Jesus prayed, take this cup away. God's answer came through the unfolding events, betrayal, arrest, abandonment, denial, beatings, trial, mockery, crucifixion, and death. The Lord Jesus prayed, let this cup pass for me. But he also prayed, let your will be done. And when the answer came from heaven, it was the answer that had been decreed from all eternity past. No, this cup will not pass from you. You will drink it, and you will drink every last drop. Jesus' prayer ultimately reveals here that God's will is best. I mean, that's not a Christian cliche. It's the picture of what we see in the Lord Jesus' prayer, isn't it? God's will is best. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. God's will is best. Submission is best. Submission is best. Can you even begin to wrap your mind here around what's going on in this picture? That this is Jesus, the eternal God, incarnate in a human being, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, one with his Father from all eternity, now bowing in a garden, hearing his Father say to him, No, I will not give you what you're asking for, but what I will give you is best. And can you imagine Jesus, the eternal God-man, replying back, Whatever you will, Father, is what I will do. Now, if there's not a lesson there for us in obedience and submission and the will of God, I don't know where else we can find it. If the God-man submitted to the will of God, we must as well. So as Jesus prays, his disciples fall off to sleep one, two, three times, and Jesus goes back to find them sleeping. He says at last, arise, see my betrayer comes. Jesus knows what's going on. He's not caught by surprise. He knew exactly what was going to happen, when it was going to happen, the timing, the place. He knows who the mob is that's coming. He knows Judas is in the front. He knows what's coming. And he says, not let's run, watch out, let's hide, let's go back to Jerusalem. He says, no, arise, the time has come. My betrayer comes. Actually, let's go to meet him. The time has come. So we move on to Jesus' betrayal and his arrest. Now, as you read the accounts of, of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, in fact, let's go over to Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark 14. Let's read his account. Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 52. Mark 14, starting in verse uh, 43. 
And immediately while he was still speaking, this is right after the event we just read in Matthew's gospel, so right after he prayed and said, Arise, let's go, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to him, Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled, and they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. I read Mark's account to you because Mark is the only one who mentions those last two verses about the young man who followed and who they, they snatched the cloth away from. It's all that he had on, so he runs off into the, the distance and the, to the darkness naked. And it's those little details that you'll see in each gospel. Luke includes that this was Malchus, the servant, the servant of the high priest whose ear was cut off, and that it was Peter who cut off his ear, and Jesus rebuked Peter, said, you know, put away your sword, those who live by the sword will die by the sword, and actually reattached Malchus's ear, remember? Mark doesn't include that. John doesn't include that story. Mark includes the man running away naked. And so how do we account for all these small differences, some of them even in the order of the way things happen? Why do the gospel accounts differ? This is a great source of contention if you remember back in the days of the Jesus seminar and scholars who got together really just trying to disprove the authenticity of the Gospels and the historicity of the life of Jesus. Um, Why do the Gospel accounts differ? Why are there different details and added details and removed details? Well, each Gospel writer is giving us different emphases. They're emphasizing different things. Some, such as the Gospel of John, seem to be giving us a more theologically based narrative. John, in all of his Gospel, it's the only one that doesn't follow us the strict chronological order. It doesn't seem to tell the story in the same way as the synoptic Gospels, because John's focus seems to be thematic and theological. Picture by picture by picture making a point. Some of them are trying to be chronological. So maybe Mark and, or Luke, and maybe in his uh, eyewitness detailed account, based on other accounts, maybe he is putting things in an actual chronological order, but making, making great link, going great lengths to make sure things are in the order that they happened. Maybe it just fits the narrative better. Maybe Matthew puts something in front of the other, not to mix up the chronology, and it's certainly not saying that it's not true, but in order to make some other point first, or this point second. Whatever the reason, (coughs) these differences do not take away from the validity or the historicity of the Gospels. Uh, The age-old illustration of this comes into play when you say uh, that we're going to have some event happen here, or maybe you watch the news and there's some event that happened and they get eyewitnesses, and depending on the perspective of the witnesses, someone watched it from their house, someone watched it from down the street, someone watched it from their backyard, and they all saw the same event, and they all saw and reported true things that happened, but maybe all saw them from different angles, reported different details, left out certain details. 
So whatever the reason, these gospel writers are coming together and their differences are not contradictions and their differences do not take away from the veracity of the gospels. In fact, they add to the veracity of the gospels and the truth of what we're reading. Because we see here, this wasn't a club of men who got together and made sure, as you know, I watch plenty of forensic files and murder shows, and you know, if, if there's a group of people, there are a group of people in on stuff together, what are they going to do? They're going to get together, make sure all their details and all their story matches up. And that's a telltale sign when they go to the cops, and the cops say, why are they all telling us the exact same story, the exact same way, with the exact same details? That immediately sounds fishy to them. The gospel writers aren't doing that. And so their differences, while they're important to talk about, do not display contradictions or untruth. They actually point to the truth of the events are happening. So that's why the similarities are so important. Because key details are retained. No matter what details Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John may add or take away from what they saw or what someone else saw, they're all telling clearly the same story and the same events with the same outcome and the same purpose. And so while the differences are important, the similarities are also important, both showing us that these events are eyewitness events and that are verified um, matters of history. So as Judas comes to betray Jesus, why a kiss? I mean, in those days, it was customary for people who greeted each other, even men who greeted each other, to greet each other with a kiss. In fact, I don't remember which epistle it is, maybe one of the first or second Peter, where he instructs uh, the churches to greet each other with a holy kiss. Remember how you want to start doing that on Sunday mornings? Turn around and kiss your neighbor. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? There was a gentleman at a church that me and my parents went to a long time ago that got really irate. And this is a fun story. Yeah, and I forgot his name, but he liked to kiss. He liked to kiss everybody. He didn't kiss the men. He sure enough kissed the women. And when the pastor told him, he's an older gentleman, harmless, but when the pastor told him, I mean, we say harmless, but when the pastor told him, you got to stop doing that, Someone told me they're uncomfortable about that. He argued from that passage in First or Second Peter. The Bible says, greet each other with a holy kiss. Needless to say, we do not live in those times, and that is not a normal greeting for us, although it still is in places like Greece and France. We still greet each other with kisses, and it's perfectly normal in the Middle East. Uh, this was that day and time, and this was just as much of a handshake or an embrace to kiss, especially an honored person such as Judas was saying he was when he said, look, the one I kiss and call rabbi, that's the one that you're going to go after. And so Judas goes and betrays Jesus with the kiss. And we see this sign of closeness, this sign of intimacy and love turn into a sign of betrayal and hatred and evil. Some of the illustrations the author points us to, I think, are worth noting. Uh, that of Absalom in 2 Samuel 15 when Absalom sort of set his heart to rebel against his father David, and he wanted to start sort of garnering some support for his rebellion, one of the things he did was to go to the gate of the city and meet people who were coming in who may have had some sort of issue with the king. 
maybe some issue where the king didn't want to see them or didn't want to judge uh, their particular case that they needed him to hear. And Absalom would wait at the gate, and he would say, oh, if only I were the judge, if only I were the one in charge, I would listen to you, I would hear you out. And he was trying to turn the people's hearts against David and towards him. And one of the things it makes special note of in 2 Samuel 15, 5 that he did was that he made sure to kiss the hands of all who entered. Again, turning that sign of love and friendship and devotion into something very selfish and self-serving and in a betraying manner. Same thing in 2 Samuel with the, uh, the, the killing of Amasa by Joab. There was a kiss that was exchanged, this facade of intimacy and closeness that, that masked the murder that was to come, 2 Samuel chapter 20. And in Proverbs 27, verse 6, the author says, extravagant are the kisses of an enemy. And the Proverbs have a lot to tell us about flattery and empty words and vain words. And it uses this illustration of someone who shows too much affection in their kisses or their words or whatever it is. Many are the kisses. Extravagant are the kisses of an enemy. And we see that come sort of maybe to this cosmological center here as Judas kisses the Lord Jesus and says, Rabbi, Jesus knows what's going on. He lets it happen. He goes to meet Judas. And then the mob comes with their swords and their clubs to arrest Jesus. Now let's, let's contrast these two groups that are here present. First, Jesus with the mob. Contrast Jesus with the mob. It says they come with clubs. They come with their swords drawn. They come under the secrecy and the darkness of night. There's deception there with Judas and his betrayal and his kiss. So what words would you attach to the mob? Cowardly, illegal, the Jewish temple guard going out to arrest someone at night, on a special night too. Contrast that with Jesus who said, I taught openly in the temple every day. I was there in front of you, you saw me. And what is, what is he drawing to mind? He's showing them their cowardice, isn't he? Because of all the times that they wanted to arrest him, remember? But they didn't because they feared the people. And so Jesus is drawing that cowardice to the forefront. Why didn't you arrest me then? Jesus knows why they didn't arrest him then. Because they were afraid of the people. And Jesus is saying, so that's why you had to come at night under the cover of darkness with all your weapons, all your swords, and all your clubs as if you were coming to arrest a thief and a robber. Jesus, contrasted with the mob, presents himself for this. He doesn't fight. He doesn't call his disciples to arms. In fact, he says the opposite. Put away your swords. Do not fight. Jesus said, I taught openly in the temple. So contrast to their cowardice and their secrecy, Jesus was bold. Jesus was courageous. Jesus presents himself for this moment. But there's another group here too, isn't there? It's not just the mob that's coming to arrest Jesus. It's Jesus' own followers who are here. And what do the Gospels reveal happened to these men? John tells us. They run off. They scatter. 
after an initial show of sign of strength by Peter, who cuts off Malchus's ear, the servant of the high priest. And isn't that so, Peter, to, to, to rise up so quickly and do something brash, only to run away after the fact? They run off, they scatter, they use violence to assault this mob. What does Jesus do? Jesus remains in place. John tells us, he actually tells the, the mob that's coming to let the disciples go, you've got the one you came for. And so even there we see the act of Jesus substituting himself for his disciples, putting, him place in, putting himself in the place of his followers. Let them go, let them run, I'm here, I'm the one you want. Even as his disciple Peter cuts off Malchus's ear, Jesus is there healing it, making it whole. Again, in the face of their cowardice and their violence, Jesus displays his love. Jesus displays his mercy and his grace even to his enemies. But that's not all he displays. In John's gospel, or Mark's gospel, excuse me, Jesus is asked point blank, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? I'm sorry, not are you the Christ, son of the living God. They ask him, are you Jesus of Nazareth? Are you the one we're looking for? And when Jesus responds with the words, I am, and that should ring you know, all the bells. When Jesus responds with those two words, I am, ego, ami, the divine name. Jesus identifies himself with the divine name. I mean, we, don't, we don't do this part in our passion plays, do we, or on the movies. But when Jesus says those two words, I am, the crowd around him stumbles back and falls to the ground. Now, I'm not a charismatic too much. And I'm not <laughs> and I, I'm not for people being slain in the spirit. And when you watch, you know, Benny Hinn, you know, whoosh his coat over the audience and the whole section goes down. I'm not for any of that. But it is interesting to me that in this moment when Jesus says the divine name, I am, all those around him can't help but stumble back and fall to the ground. I don't know what that means. I don't think it's prescriptive for us to go around doing that kind of thing. But it happens in that moment as a show of Jesus' power. Contrasted to the cowardice of the mob, the cowardice of his disciples, the fear, the secrecy, the betrayal. Here is Jesus in his love and his mercy and his grace. And yes, even his power being revealed in this moment. That takes us to the early hours of Friday, April 7th, A.D. 30, and what we call the Jewish trial. There are several trials Jesus faces, trial before the Jewish leaders, the trial before Pilate, the trial before King Herod. And the first of these is, of course, the Jewish trial, where Jesus is found, at least according to them, guilty. He's found guilty of blasphemy. Jesus' Jewish trial can be found in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and also in John 18. In fact, let's turn to John's gospel, um, verse 18, or chapter 18, John 18. There's a little, a little difference in John's gospel. Uh, and it was actually the gospel of John. Uh, where they drew back and fell to the ground, by the way, not Mark's gospel. John 18, verse 6, I am, and uh, they drew back and fell to the ground. John tells us a little bit about what's going on here in the first part of Jesus' trial. 
So what we know about the trial, and the book does a good job making, making a big deal of this. I don't have time to go through every point. But the Sanhedrin, that is sort of the collection of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish religious leaders, there's a lot of things they do in this trial that is a disregard of their own customs and their own laws. A trial at night. A trial in someone's home, not in the courtyard of the temple. A trial without verifiable witnesses. A trial with witnesses who don't seem to agree on their story. All of these are specified not only in the law, according to like Deuteronomy, like the law of Moses, but also in the customs of the Pharisees themselves. So what can possibly explain the fact that these pious, holy, law-keeping people, so to speak, so easily disregard their own laws and their own customs in this instance of Jesus' trial? Well, it shows their desperation. Their desperation to do something about Jesus now. We have him now. It was the right moment for them to have Judas show them where he was. I know where he'll be alone at night under cover of darkness. We've got to do it now. So the crowds don't get worked up. So the crowds don't kill us. So we don't get in trouble with Rome by causing an uproar in the city. Let's do this now under the cover of darkness, under the cover of night. And they're willing so much willing to get rid of Jesus that they want to do it, let's just say, illegally. With a false trial, mock witnesses, improper place, improper setting because of their desperation. Now this Jewish trial has three phases. Phase one is told to us only by the Gospel of John, and that's what we're going to read here. Uh, in John 18, beginning in verse 12. John 18, verse 12. Band of soldiers and their captain, the officers of the Jews, arrested him and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be more expedient that one man should die for the people. So first, in this trial, Jesus is brought before Annas. Now, Annas is not the high priest. Caiaphas is the high priest. But Caiaphas just happens to be Annas's, uh, Annas happens to be Caiaphas' father-in-law. Now, if they're playing their cards right, they know they're breaking the law, technically their law, the Jewish law. They know they're breaking their own customs and traditions. But they also know that these chief priests, Annas included probably, wanted Jesus gone. And so if we're going to circumvent our own system and our own laws and our own customs, we probably need to start with the top. And in this case, it's clear that Caiaphas, even though he's technically the high priest, isn't the top. Father-in-law is on the top. And so they go to him first. Because if we can sway Annas, an older man, very influential, very powerful, probably could tell Caiaphas, his son-in-law, what he's going to do as high priest, we need to go to him first. We need to get him on board with this first. And so they take him to Annas, the high priest. Look down in verse 19 of John 18. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken only uh, openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and the temple where all the Jews are together. I have said nothing in secret 
Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, here's another one of those instances where people say, well, which is it? Is Caiaphas the high priest or is Annas the high priest? Because it just said you took him to Annas, and he's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. But then it keeps calling Annas the high priest. Once again, then, at the end, calling Caiaphas the high priest. So people say, well, which is it? You know, get your story straight, John. Well, it'd be just as if uh, we still referred to Donald Trump as President Trump. He is not the current president of the United States of America, but we still refer to him as President Trump or President Jimmy Carter, President George W. Bush. It's the same thing, uh, such as, you know, we just got to go off on a conference and we saw some people we know and uh, people will still call me pastor, even though I'm not their youth pastor at the church anymore. I'm nevertheless referred to and remembered in that way. Same thing's going on here with Annas. He is not the sitting high priest, but out of reverence for him and respect, he is still referred to as the high priest. He hears Jesus. He hears the call for witnesses. He says, you're, you're right, we probably need to do this in that way. So he sends Jesus off to Caiaphas and the religious leaders known as the Sanhedrin or the Sanhedrin. So phase two occurs there in the middle of the night with the Jewish religious leaders, the combination of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes and the chief priests and the elders gathered together to try Jesus. Let's go back to Matthew 26 and just read part of this here. Matthew 26. Um, starting in verse 57. Matthew 26, 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So here in this first part of Jesus' trial, we see several things. One, false witnesses with false accusations. Now, did Jesus say something about destroying the temple? Did he say something about it being rebuilt in three days? He did say that. But if you were listening and understood, John tells us that Jesus was referring to the temple of his body. And while he prophesied the destruction of the temple later, Jesus never said, I'm going to destroy the temple and I'm going to rebuild it in three days. But there was a misunderstanding of what Jesus taught by these fleshly sinful minds that came up in this instance as false witness against Jesus. Now at last they come to the real question in verse 64, uh, or verse 63, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said so, 
But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? So they asked Jesus, are you the son of the living God? Here Jesus says, you have said so. You will see the son of man seated at the right hand of heaven and coming on the clouds of heaven. Mark says that Jesus responded again with the divine name. Are you the son of the living God? And Jesus said, I am. Now, Jesus brings up these two references. One, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel 7, verse 13. You remember Daniel had a vision And he saw the Ancient of Days seated on a throne. Remember this? And then he saw one who had a white robe and a gold sash, who was shining like the sun. Remember, and he came to the Ancient of Days who was on the throne. And the Ancient of Days gave this one that Daniel says looked like the Son of Man. He gave him dominion and power to judge. So this image of Daniel and this vision, he sees a son of man glorified in splendor and glory coming to the Ancient of Days and he is given judgment over the world. And it says specifically that he was coming on the clouds of heaven. And he couples this with Psalm 110 verse 1. Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Remember this, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, David's Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus says, coupling those both together, those were about me. I am the one who comes to the ancient of days. I am the son of man who has given judgment over the whole world. I am the Son of Man who sits at the right hand of God, His anointed. I am the anointed King. That's why when he says those two phrases, Daniel and Psalms, the high priest tears his clothes, a sign of of blasphemy, and he tells him, this is all we need to hear. We know exactly what this man is claiming. He claims to be the Christ. He's claiming to be equal with God. He's claiming to be the one who will judge the world. Now that's interesting, isn't it? The irony of this situation. That these chief priests and elders think that they're sitting in judgment over Jesus. And Jesus tells them in a not so indirect way, No, I'm actually the judge of you. And when I come, you will know that to be true. Phase three is Jesus before the Sanhedrin once again at daybreak. Short accounts of this uh, trial, very short and brief. A few last questions. Once again, are you the Christ? And Jesus affirms, you have said so. And so they send him now off to Pilate because they know they don't have the authority to execute anyone. They need Pilate to be in on it now as well. But before we get there, let's talk about these two betrayals. We don't have time to read the scriptural um, uh, narratives here. But what are some key differences between Peter's denials and Judas's betrayal? Now, true, um, 
Peter doesn't necessarily betray Jesus in terms of handing him over to his enemies. But there is a betrayal there, isn't there? In, in Peter's three denials of Jesus. It's not unlike Judas' betrayal of Jesus. They're both coming from places of doubt, places of fear, places of selfishness and self-serving. And Peter says, no, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Three times he denies that he knows Jesus to save his own skin, right? Because he thinks they're probably going to come after him too. And so three times Peter denies that he even knows Jesus, cursing and swearing the last time to be so emphatic that he has no idea who Jesus is. And he's definitely not one of his followers. Contrast that with Judas and his betrayal. And contrast that with the two of them who both seem to experience remorse after the fact. Peter goes off weeping. Judas weeps and experiences hopelessness to the point of suicide as he hangs himself. So what's the difference between these two? And why are their their outcomes so different? Seems like the same story to me. Betrayal, denial, cowardice, fear, selfishness. But Peter reconciles. He's reconciled by Jesus at the end of John's gospel. And just as Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus three times asked Peter again, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And gives Peter three charges. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Peter's reconciled. He repents. His tears of remorse lead him to repentance, not just sorrow. Whereas Judas, realizing his wrong in his remorse, is not reconciled, does not repent, does not go back to serve the Lord, but instead succumbs to his hopelessness and kills himself. But this is not the main difference. The main difference is in Luke twenty-two thirty-two. Write that down, Luke twenty-two thirty-two. Jesus says, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. Well, Satan has to have permission to do anything that he's going to do, right? He has to have permission for, for Judas to do what he did. God had to ordain Judas to do what he did for it to even happen. Satan had Judas, but Satan didn't have Peter. For Jesus says, Satan desired to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. You know what Jesus says next, do you remember? But I have prayed for you. There's the difference between Peter and Judas. Not not the strength of their character. Not their moral ability in and of themselves. Peter's just as much as a rotten, embarrassing, fearful sinner as Judas is. But Jesus prayed for Peter. So we come to the end and ask a few applicational questions. What about you? How is Jesus' submission to the Father an example for us? Maybe you want to write a few thoughts down. Maybe you want to take this home with you and think about it later. That's a wonderful thing to do. Specifically, this next question. Are there areas or things in your life that you need to submit to God in this way? Are there areas in your life, sin, temptations, maybe just distractions, 
Maybe real burdens for your family, for yourself, for a loved one, for a friend, whatever it is. Are there things that you need to be able to say, God, this is what I want, this is what I'm asking for, but nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. What areas in your life need to be submitted to God in that way? How does God answer our prayers when we ask for things? God always answers prayer. There are no unanswered prayers. Does God answer with yes? Does he answer with no? Does he answer with later? Does he answer with something else? God always answers the prayers of his people. Maybe not the way you want him to. So how can we trust God's grace when he says no? If it's something you're asking for, healing for yourself, healing for a family member, salvation for a family member, or just some situation that you're praying for, and God's answer is no. How can you trust his grace when he says no? Well, you need to go back to the garden, go with Jesus to Gethsemane, into the oil press, and there see the Savior pleading with his Father for a change of circumstances. And you see the Father say, no. And how does the Son respond? Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. How can we model Jesus' submission in our own suffering? 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. You can look there later. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. Peter tells us that we should not defend ourselves in terms of raising an argument against our enemies. We shouldn't quarrel. We don't need to defend ourselves to anybody. Remember, Moses at the Red Sea, only stand still and let the Lord fight the battle. Jesus modeled that for us in the face of false testimony and false witnesses and a sham trial. What does it say Jesus did? Except when he needed to speak, he remained silent. He did not need to defend himself. Lastly, why is it important to remember that Jesus is praying for you? Romans 8.34 says that the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Even more than that, it says Jesus is even now interceding for us the same way that he prayed for Peter we are assured that if we belong to him he is also praying for us praying for our sanctification praying for our holiness praying for our preservation in the faith that we will not fall away but will ultimately be saved Jesus himself is praying those things to his father so you see that difference between Peter and Judas. And you say, oh, I hope, I hope Jesus is praying for me in the way he was praying for Peter. Is that the only difference between Judas and Peter is that Jesus was praying for Peter? I hope he's praying for me. You can rest assured tonight that Jesus is praying for you. If you belong to him, he is interceding for you even right now at the right hand of the Father. From whence he will come to judge the living and the dead, riding on the clouds of heaven. Let's pray.
Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you that you are even now praying for us before the throne of God, pleading your wounds and your precious blood on our behalf. We ask that you would help us in our weakness. Help us, Jesus, because you know that our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. And so help us to stay vigilant, to stay alert, to stay awake, to watch, to be ready. Help us to pray. Help us to submit. Help us to trust you, knowing that your will and your plan and your way is always what's best for us. We trust you. We love you. Help us as we enter this holy week, beginning Sunday with Palm Sunday, to look to you not just through the stories and the pictures that we're so used to, but to experience your love and your mercy and your salvation afresh as we remember what you've done for us through your cross and through your resurrection. Send us from this place tonight with your blessing and your Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.